Hi, I'm Valerie Moisel. Over 20 years ago, I co-founded my company with a creative spark, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a fearless attitude. At the time, I didn't quite know what I was doing, but by jumping right in, not being afraid to make mistakes, and surrounding myself with people I could learn from, I had no choice but to figure it out. Well, I'm ready to be fearless again. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. In fact, it's different for everyone, but there is a common thread. We all have what I call the four S's, the initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order, and yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Before each interview, I thought it would be insightful to not only bring my perspective as a Gen Xer, but to have a quick chat with a rising millennial who is on her own unique path to greatness. My hope is that she will one day pass the torch and mentor others. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are Women Who Rule. This is She Dynasty. I'd like to introduce you all to Haley Stanfield. Haley works at my company on the business development team, and she is a rising star. I don't want anyone to confuse her with Kaylee, who was on my last podcast. They're two very, very different people. Um, Their names just sound alike. So welcome, Haley. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. So as you know, today we are going to be chatting with Luba Azria, and you expressed personal interest in talking to her. And I wanted to hear a little bit about why. Obviously, hearing how someone that was part of such an iconic brand from the beginning is such an opportunity to learn from them and just kind of pick their brain on all the struggles they went through, how they kept going. And what does the brand mean to you? The brand to me is so iconic. I think it's a household name, especially for girls. Um, Just looking back at high school and all of my proms. I grew up in Maine and we didn't have access to so many of the big brands like you do here in Los Angeles. Obviously we had malls and it was more like Gap and Abercrombie. So shopping for prom was a bigger deal. And we got, you know, to go to pick out dresses that we probably wouldn't be just wearing on a daily basis. And I felt like BCBG just in my mind was always that go-to that every girl looked forward to getting her prom dress from there. And do you remember your prom dress? I do, very clearly. So I went to two proms, and both were BCBG dresses. My favorite was my senior year. Um, I had so many pictures of me in that dress. I felt amazing. It was navy blue, chiffon on the bottom, silk on the top, with these sequin beaded details that I got so many compliments, and I felt like a million bucks. Well, Luba is known for her attention to detail. And I, you know, I think it's really interesting that you um, talk about your prom dress just because, you know, there's not a lot of dresses that people can remember with such detail. So the fact that you um, have that memory of that dress and will for the rest of your life, I think is really interesting. I definitely will. What would you like to learn from Luba today? I'd be really interested in knowing about 
how she picks candidates and how she would look for rising stars when hiring people. Obviously, she built an empire upon hiring the right people and growing her team. So I'd be really interested in, to know the attributes and you know even personalities she looks for when hiring. Yeah, the interviewing process is a little tricky sometimes. Um, you know, people interview really well, so it'll be interesting to see her take on that. Definitely. Well, she should be here in a few minutes, and we'll find out. Perfect. The incredibly talented Luba Azria, the former chief creative officer of BCBG Max Azria for the past 25 years, is here with me. Welcome, Luba. Oh, thank you, Valerie. I'm very happy to be here. This is exciting. I don't know if you know this, but working at BCBG was one of my very first jobs. And I have always admired you, your work, your creativity, and your work ethic. You know, the fact that you've played such a huge role in building a brand to be a global fashion empire, how many women can say that they have done that? It's, it's incredible. Do you look at it that way? Oh my gosh. It's a full question. I think in the beginning, you sort of focus what needs to be done. And you don't have a chance to step away and look at everything you've built. So I think there have been times where I have truly connected and was overwhelmed and happy and, you know. When you're in it, you probably don't realize what you're doing and you don't realize kind of the fruits of your labor or the accomplishments when it's happening. It's kind of after the fact that you step back and take it all in. Absolutely. I think you're more focused when on your deadlines, what you have to deliver. You also... Um, employ so many people, so you're responsible for so many lives. So you become very serious and very focused. And I think the the fun part of it really comes with maturity level. It does, right? <laughs> yes. And how you have evolved since you started and where you are now is probably so different. Correct. Well, before we get into some of the detail of that, I want to take us back to the beginning. Tell me a little bit about your childhood and growing up in the former USSR. I was born in 1967, so that I actually turned 50 this year. Wow, 50, it's a big one. You look fabulous. (laughs) Thank you. I was born in Kiev, Ukraine, and uh, from a very young age, I was very creative and extremely shy. In former Soviet Union, you really don't have a choice on your hobbies and what you kind of aspire to do. You have a group of people from the government, usually, that come in and they do different testing on you and see what your abilities are. And so I was chosen to be um, in gymnastics first when I was five or six years old, and then later on in ballet. So I end up most of my life basically training and dancing ballet after school yeah how many years did you practice ballet so I started around when I was six so until I was 12 are you still dancing or are those days over <laughs> I dance in a shower there you go <laughs> and at the parties those are the best places to dance <laughs> Yes, but so I do have a, I have a full gym with the bar and mirrors, so oh, I wow. do my stretches. Can your body still move the way that it used to when you were younger a little bit? Is it like once you kind of train your body to do that, it knows what to do? Once you train your body, it knows what to do. Maybe at, not at not as not graceful, <laughs> <laughs> but you definitely don't forget the moves. What did all that ballet teach you? Any disciplines that you learned from there that you carried forward? My biggest lesson from ballet is discipline and also learning about 
woman's body and how we move and seeing so many different body shapes in ballet classes. And I end up spending more time in the sewing room with the seamstresses than I did dancing a lot of the time. Because at the age 10, I grew so tall. I'm 5'7", but ballerinas are really not that tall. And so the taller you are, at least in the company that I was dancing is you're kind of more in the back, you know, and Mm -hmm. so you don't end up dancing the whole time. You end up dancing in certain segments. So I was fascinated with costumes. Interesting. So understanding the way that a woman's body worked somehow paid forward to your years as a designer. Exactly. Oh my gosh, I love that. Isn't it (laughs) interesting you don't realize that things that you learn as a child play such an important role in things that you do as an adult? They really do. Other than ballet, tell us a little bit about your other personal sparks that where you knew that you were a creative person. The other hobbies that I had was art. And I loved going to museums. I loved painting. I think most of my time when I wasn't dancing, I was either sketching or drawing. I had a wonderful young teacher who taught me how to paint and how to do washes, ink washes. And, and I would immerse myself for hours in just doing that. But you never saw yourself as a fashion designer. You were just a creative person. I never saw myself as a fashion designer. I actually didn't know that they exist. You know, it's interesting because uh, there's no department stores that sell fashion in former Soviet Union. It was like marketplace that you go and there would be dresses that all look exactly the same, but just in different prints. The purpose of clothing was to protect you from the weather. Exactly. It it wasn't to to make a statement when you walked into a room. It had a different purpose back then. No, not at all. (laughs) That's so funny. Interesting. Okay. We were all supposed to blend in and look the same. You moved to the U.S., Tell us a little bit about that transition. You were about 12 years old when you moved here? Correct. Did you freak out? Were you just lost? Did you speak the language? How did that work? At the age of 10, um, my parents applied for a visa to leave to Israel, actually, not United States. And that process took about a year, year and a half, where during that time, I was declared a Jew, which means that I couldn't take ballet classes anymore. Why? Uh, because Jews are not allowed to practice and to enter certain institutions. So I ended up staying at home a lot, practicing at home and sketching at home and, and doing until we left because we were considered to be defectors. And so that, I think it was about a year, a year and a half. Um, and then when we left, um, it was very interesting because there's an organization that sponsored us and they were amazing called HIAS. And so our trip was... Uh, from Ukraine to Vienna, and from Vienna to Italy in Ladispol, and then from there we had to decide where we're going to go. And a lot of people stayed in Vienna, a lot of people stayed in Ladispol, but and we wanted to go to Israel. However, because my father is in Jewish, and in 1980 there was a war in Israel, or at least they were. Um, they really advised us very strongly to go to America, Australia, or somewhere else, and so we did. And what did your parents do at the time? My father is an electrician and my mom is a nurse. So we chose to go to United States and we had some friends in San Antonio, Texas. Interesting. <laughs> wow. So that's where I grew up. So really. you were there till what age? From age 12 to 17. 
And then at 17, you moved to Los Angeles? Correct. And what moved your family to Los Angeles? We lost everything. In 1986, there was an oil crisis in Texas. And so my parents lost their jobs, and eventually we lost our house. So we packed everything we had and just drove to Los Angeles. And was there a reason that Los Angeles was chosen? Was it, was it just a dream of a better life there? I think you always go where you have friends and family. Right. So you knew some people here, or your parents did at the time. When you came to L.A., did you feel like you had to start over again? I mean, it's hard to do the transition once. You've done it twice, where you had to, like, rebuild your you know, your friend group. and I look at things a little bit differently. I think it's, I'm always excited about change. You know, the only constant thing in life is change. So even though I was, didn't have any friends, didn't know anyone, but I was looking forward to the opportunities. So I actually went to Fairfax High School, believe it or not. You did. Yeah. You know, I went there too. Mm -hmm. I left, it was funny, I left after a year because the school was a little bit too rough for me. I had some It's a tough school. I had some girls I mean, you have metal detectors before you walk in, you know, that would be like the A students would be in the front, all the stoners would be in the back. I mean, the teachers were overwhelmed, but it was an incredible experience. I ended up taking... um, being there for half a year and then the other half doing work experience and it was it was good you know it was good it was good to learn the culture something you just said that i think is really interesting that i think people listening will really want to hear about is you said that you were really shy as a child and now you don't seem shy at all a lot of people that are struggling with being shy and are trying to figure out how to make it in the world of business like what advice do you have for them how do you overcome that I think being shy is when you're really insecure and you're afraid. And I think fear is what drives me. I mean, tell me no and I'll make it into a yes. And I think you need to work on it. But I think being shy, it's not about you. Do you know what I'm saying? When you go out there and you make presentation, when you go out there and you do podcasts, it's, it's really not about you. It's about the message. It's about the story that you're telling. So be the best storyteller. Yeah, I mean, you you don't seem shy to me at all. So somehow you've overcome it. So good job. I'm 15. (laughs) I have one of my daughters is a little bit on the shy side, and I, you know, I worry about it as a mom. I'm, I'm like, how is she going to succeed? You know, everything's so competitive now, and I'm always trying to think of strategies of. She'll come up. She'll, you know, but hearing that you were a shy child actually gives me a little bit of hope. So I'm happy you told me. I that. love introverts. You love, I love introverts. <laughs> After high school, you went to FIDM. Yes. So there's a there's a story behind it. I never really realized that there's a job as a designer. Like I thought that I'm going to be an art history professor. That was my goal. So I studied art. I did my research on art. So coming to Los Angeles, um, I really wanted to go to Northridge, to tell you the truth, and to study art. My mom, however, told me that there's no money in that. I think about how many creative people struggle with the fact that they know that their core is creative mm-hmm. because they're never taught how that translates into a job that they end up thinking that they have to be an art teacher or an, you know a painter at home. And the same happened for me because I've always been a very creative person mm-hmm. and I've always been business minded. So when somebody explained to me that advertising was a way to take creativity and, you know, really kind of push what I was good at, I didn't even know that was a job. I, I really relate yeah. to what you just said Absolutely. because Absolutely. we need to teach creative people that there are so many outlets and how you can make money and make a career. Absolutely. And people need and want that creativity because the most of the world is not creative. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So my experience at Fairfax was that, you know, I was taking art classes and obviously I was excelling at them and it was great. And one day there was, um, you know, the colleges come in because you're a senior, so they're coming in and uh, FITM came in and I filled out you know, a card that they give you, like a little card where I love fashion. I do. I love fashion. You know, I, I, I love designing, you know, all those things. So next thing I knew, they called my parents and we were there for the interview. But there's a story behind it. So the, when I arrived in Los Angeles, again, um, the school didn't start yet because we were, um, I think it was September, August, August. Anyway, I decided to take a bus and go visit different areas in Los Angeles. And one of the areas was Beverly Hills. And I decided I'm going to go on a day drive just to look at the fashion. So the bus dropped me off and I started walking on Wilshire and I stopped in front of a large department store. And um, I looked into the window and there was the most beautiful dress I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I was just dumbfounded. I looked at the dress and I thought, I have to go in. <laughs> I have to go in. So I, now there, there was a lot of fear uh, going into the department store that big because when I lived in Texas, I usually shopped at Lowman's or Walmart, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Kmart, Blue Light Special. Right. You know, I really... I mean, Foley's maybe, but I really didn't have, we didn't go into a large department store. So anyway, I decided to walk in and I walk in and there happens to be a trunk show. So I asked where the dress was that was in the window. They told me on the second floor. So I went to the second floor and I saw the dress hanging there. So I asked the salesperson if I can try it on. She said, yes. I get into the, sh um, the dressing room. I put the dress on. And it is stunning. I remember it's a princess cut, and at the time it was like, um, you know, it had a full skirt. I mean, it was so stunning. So this is the dress that launched your career, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the designer? We need to know. Um, it was, I think it was Oscar de la Renta, believe it or not. It was Oscar de la Renta, the trunk, trunk show. Anyway, so I'm in this gorgeous dress, and I'm twirling around, you know, and all of a sudden I see a price tag, and the price tag is $3,000, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. And at that moment, I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, what am I doing? Who do I think I am? You know, I'm nothing. People like me don't wear clothes like that, take that dress off. I mean, I started being extremely negative and abusive towards myself. I don't even know why, because I'm usually I'm not that way. And I started crying and then I pulled myself kind of, picked my head up, basically, and looked in the mirror, and I said, if I ever, ever become a designer, I will never make dresses that are this expensive. I will never make any woman feel this pain. And um, made that promise, took off the dress, I remember put it back on the hanger, thanked the salesperson. From that moment on, my life changed. Oh my gosh. I just got chills hearing you say that because basically you're telling us the vision for the BCBG brand was born, you know, part of it was born on that day. So, oh my gosh. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Out of FIDM, did you get um, your first job at BCBG? Was that your first job or were, were there other jobs in between? My first job, um, when I was still in school, that's how I was paying for school, 
uh, was just a f- recommendation from a friend, and I started working, and then there were other jobs as well. So I think I've had like four jobs before I met Max. And what were you doing? Pattern making, assisting, you know, just picking up pens sometimes, whatever needed to be done. And at the time, was the vision to be a designer at this point? Had you kind of gotten to the point that you made a decision that that was your path? It's a great question. I don't think you do that. I think when you're working, you're supporting somebody else's vision, and that's not your vision. And so a lot of the times it's quite frustrating, and especially during the time that I was working, um, I had wonderful people that surround me, but I couldn't appreciate that. You know, I had my social life. I had other things. Yeah, so. I think I think it's interesting in reflection. When you're younger, you don't always necessarily start out with this giant vision of where you're going to be. You just kind of get into the workforce. You do your job, mm-hmm. and you see where it leads you. And, you know, I think that now people are kind of more programmed to think about what is the big goal, what is the big vision. But I think, you know, back then for me as well, you just got into a job mm-hmm. and you did your thing, and it led you where it led you, Right. Exactly. So you started working at BCBG, and your first job there was? My first job there was assistant designer to Max Azria. I mean, the company was very tiny. Yeah. How many um, people when you first started, oh do you gosh, think? I don't know, 10, <laughs> 10 12. Incredible. I think everybody was doing everything. and uh, Everybody wore many hats at the time. Correct. Everyone wore every hat, pretty much so. And it was exciting, you know, and Max and I got to know each other uh, better. And then you probably uh, worked really closely to, you know, together because you had to do everything. (laughs) Well, actually, it was very interesting because um, the first besides sketching for him ideas and he would pick, you know, ideas from the sketches. But I had to try on every single piece that was in the inventory, you know, um, on for him. He wanted to see <laughs> before how the e-commerce work <laughs> so he could see it. Right. And I think that's where sort of that I don't know if it's like the spark, that, that, one of the, the sparks. I don't came. know if it was maybe a spark from him. Definitely not from me because I was kind of frustrated. But I think that's when we sort of started even communicating. I think it was during that time. So tell us, was it love at first sight? Um, not from my side. <laughs> <laughs> Max is 18 years senior than I am. And so I looked at him as more of a father figure, I think, more. And so I think our love grew from respect, which I think is probably the best type of love. Right. You, and you spent so much time together and kind of in it, in the thick of things. And when you, you know, spend that much time working through, you know, mm-hmm. challenges love kind of just grows sometimes so not all the time but yes (laughs) (laughs) I think you have to know when to shut up and listen I think that's important thing in relationship when to you need to ask yourself what is my purpose why am I here you know I think one of the great things with me is um, when I was 18 years old, I took Tony Robbins seminars, and uh, he really changed the way I looked at everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I was in my midst of trying to find the right job, I kept on asking the questions, and I would ask Max a lot of questions, and he liked that. Because he's not detail-oriented. He is a visionary. He's global, and I'm very detail-oriented. And that's actually the first question he asked me on a job interview. He says, are you detail-oriented? 
I need a French accent. (laughs) (laughs) Are you? No, I can't do it. Anyway, I said, yes, I'm extremely detail-oriented and very focused. And he said, you're hired. And so we started working together. It was great. So how long until you kind of realized that you reciprocated some of the feelings he had? Was it a long time? Was it a few months, a few years? If you know Max, he doesn't like to wait for anything. <laughs> so I think three months. Yes. I think three months okay. before we actually started officially going out. He's a very romantic guy. He could barely speak English, which was great. <laughs> um He's he's incredible. He's the he's the love of my life. BCBG has been accredited with being the first brand to make runway style accessible for the everyday woman. And you told us a little bit about the inspiration for that a few minutes ago when you talked about putting on that dress and what that felt like. So tell us, how did you make this big idea come to fruition? When I first started working with Max, uh, he was doing items. So he was doing stirrup pants, pleated skirts, pleated pants, jackets. And it didn't make sense to me. I said, you know, you kind of have to make a collection. You have to make sure that everything is kind of like a wardrobe. And so for Mac, that was very new at that time because it was an item-driven business. Um, And so we started making collection and presenting the collection. And you created a new category, right? Well, contemporary is a new category, yes. So at that time, there was only junior or designer. There was no contemporary market. There were Missy as well, but really there was not that price point. You either had contemporary casual, which the jackets were like, $48, or you had Donna Karen where the jackets were like $800. So you didn't have anything in between. So there was a few of us there. It was, um, I think it was Vertigo. um, Oh my gosh, there was Vertigo, BCBG, I want to say Opera. There were like a few people that were, we were, we were a group that, and most department stores didn't know what to do with us because we were at the affordable price point and we did collections. It was probably really exciting for a lot of the department stores because there was a giant gaping hole where there was a huge need for women who, you know, wanted to feel beautiful, as you mentioned, but just couldn't afford to do it at that level. Yeah, it was an exciting time. We were building, I mean, our company was. It was doubling every year. It was double digits. It was incredible, exciting, crazy. Uh, I mean, to deliver a collection every single month. Our item, I remember, was a slinky dress. Oh, my gosh. I think that fabric. I wanted to get a dog and call it slinky. But... <laughs> I remember the slinky dress. Yes. The company was born from the baby doll dress, right? I know that was Max's first thing. Yes, yes. It was his first design, a baby doll. And he didn't know about style numbers or anything like that. So he would, um, there was a perfume store on the way to LA Mart. And he would just read all the labels there. So the first dress was like opium. (laughs) And then he basically would use different names from perfumes to name his dresses. Did you love or hate being married and working together? Both. You know, I think that there's two things. You know, I love what I did and I was passionate about it. What I didn't like is I was Max's wife and I thought I have a name. Right. So that's actually one of my next questions. Did you ever, (laughs) did you have an issue with the fact that you put so much hard work into this equally to him? And his name was always, you know, on the forefront of the brand. How did that, how did that make you feel? 
Actually, I didn't mind his name being on forefront of the brand because we decided that it was going to be his name because I didn't want to be upfront in the beginning. I actually insisted that the BCBG, because we had to put something, it was BCBG Paris and the collection wasn't made in Paris. So we first we tried Los Angeles and it didn't look right in terms of the way it was formatted. So we thought BCBG Max Azria just has more of an identity, has more of a um, visionary kind of look to it. Right, and so, I remember, I think I remember you painstakingly obsessing over the perfect logo. The font. And, yes, the font. And you <laughs> like had it done a billion times before it was perfect, and it was so important to you. And that goes to, again, your attention to detail, where a lot of people who are not creative would look at that font and say, what's the big deal? It looks like so many other sans serif fonts where indeed it doesn't. You know, someone who comes from advertising and somebody who understands and appreciates typography, I loved that you did that. And I knew you were doing the right thing, you know, just by obsessing over it. Because so many people were questioning why, you know, why? Exactly, why, which is a great question, why? (laughs) As a business owner myself, I have always been really fascinated by how quickly you guys scaled the company. So as you mentioned, when you first started, there was, you know, 10 people. And I think at its height, there was like 15,000 people worldwide. And, you know, I have a company right now. I have about 60 people who work for me. And I always struggle with how, how do you scale when you're an owner of a company? How, you know, you're so in it and you're so part of the, the output and the product of what the company makes how is scaling to that um, level possible? How, how did you do that? Well, I think the more people you have, the more they can help you to create your vision. So let's say that you want your business to be 30 million. So you work backwards and you figure out how many people you need to make that goal. Right, but as you grow, you have to start giving up control of certain areas of the company, right? And so you have to, cert- you have to just trust, right? Well, you're not good at everything. So you have to create a relationship with people. You have to create communication skills where you learn to respect each other and trust, you know, because I think respect comes first and then trust comes second. So it's also putting the right people in place, people that have experience, know what they're doing, that kind of, um, you know, fill the holes where you have weaknesses because everybody has their strengths and weaknesses, right? I think both. I think experience is overrated, to tell you the truth. I think some people that you hire with experience, they want to bring their own ideas of what worked from other companies, but they don't really mirror what your company is. I actually like to promote from within people. I think that to me is extremely important. I mean, obviously at the high positions like president of the company or CFO, you need people with large experience. But when it comes to like marketing, I like people who have fresh ideas. I like people who take chances. I also love when people interview and they say, I'll do windows, floors, and bring you coffee because I know that they're dedicated. And that's what you want at the end of the day. You know, if you're staying late, you want a group of people to stay with you and you want people also to be honest. I think that a lot of people are trying to say, what is Lubeth going to think? Do you 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 feel like the work ethic of the younger generation is different than the work ethic of our generation? Do you find a difference? Uh, in the last 25 years, I think I interviewed maybe a thousand, maybe probably more, probably more. And to tell you the truth, you always, you don't always know, but you pretty much can guess. So when you have an interview and someone, it, 
has a hard time giving you eye contact and doesn't ask any question, you usually know that they are going to be yes people and you're probably not going to get... They'll stay late, but it doesn't mean they're going to be productive, right. you know? And you so want a certain I sense of confidence in Yeah, people. I encourage people to ask questions. And they usually come from families that, you know, when they're little and their mom would take them to the doctor, the mother would say to the child, you know, um, don't ask any question, just, just, just be quiet, you know, let, him, let the doctor, you know, tell you. And, yeah. um, and then there's interviews where, you know, there's candidates that do ask you questions and usually, you know, then you kind of can see that their, their intelligence level, you know, and you can agree with certain things, you know, you don't want people to bring too much of their old habits with them too, you know, you want people to be part of a community. And that to me, I think when somebody has worked for 10 years somewhere and they come in, they're going to automatically go into that mode and I feel like you always have to be fresh. You always be on yeah. point. You always have to learn and grow. So I'm looking for certain type of candidates. Yeah. And then you have interviews where you're being interviewed. Yeah. And I've had a few of those. That, a lot of it comes from, you know, kids who are well off, whose parents says, you tell them what you want. Yeah. And those are the ones I try to avoid, not because it's just that... Well, there's just not a humbleness there, so it's, it's... Yeah, and also I just think that they need to start their own business and they have to learn from their own mistakes, yeah. you know, and I don't feel like I should be paying for their mistakes. That's the bottom line. So there's a, you know, in interviewing so many people, it's exciting. There's a great... Um, I'm going to share with you this wonderful story that I share with so many people because it's, it's true truly inspired me and inspired how I live and how I make my decisions. There's a wonderful writer. Uh, his name, actually writer, reporter, his name is Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote incredible books. Uh, one of them is called The Tipping Point. And yes. it really resonated with me. There's a, there's a story in The Tipping Point where he talks about a Harvard professor that was looking for an intern. And um, on a job interview, he only asked one question, and this was the question. Imagine you are driving a Porsche. Now, it's a two-seater. It's brand new. It's a beautiful day. The sun is shining. You're feeling amazing. You're driving this car, and as you're driving down this long road, you look to your right, and there are three people standing there. The first person is your best friend someone who's been there all your life, someone who's basically the best of the best, who's meant to be in your life, who basically saved your life. The second person, it's a woman or a man, it doesn't really matter, but they're having a heart attack. And if someone doesn't help them, they're going to die. And the third person is the love of your life. This is the only person that's meant to be in your life. You can only put one person in a car. Wow, that's who would that's you heavy. <laughs> this is going to be our new interview question <laughs> moving forward at, at my company. So basically, believe it or not, um, majority of people would say the person that's dying from a heart attack. Now, you cannot come back at all. This is the only decision you make in your life, and that's it. So, um, you know, if you're not married, you'll say the best friend. You know, a lot of people would say the love of my life. Um, but the answer that the professor was looking for is you get out of the car. You give the keys to your best friend to take the person that's having a heart attack 
to the hospital and you stay with the love of your life. Oh, I love that. So the idea in life is to always get out of the car. People don't give you choices. Like I didn't give you a choice whether you get out get out of the car. Right. You have to you, think about things differently. You have exactly. to go about it differently. And that's about that's the way my husband thinks, Max. He's always getting out of the car. He, he doesn't look at the obvious. People will give him this is your choice, this is your choice, this is your choice. And he says, They're not my choices. We They're have your choices. choices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's Very really true. important that you hire people who think outside the box, the ones who really think of how to do things differently. Like, for example, when you're starting your business, you have no money. Do you know what I'm saying? So how are you going to do it with no money? Well, you become creative. You use your resources. You have fun with it. That's what youth is about. For sure. Not telling someone else what to do. <laughs> right. So I want to talk a little bit about the idea of the shift. And you just mentioned the tipping point. So it was my next question. At what point did you and Max look at each other and think, wow, we have something incredible here. That moment where you knew that this was going to be larger than you ever expected. Was there a certain deal that you made or an order that was placed or something that made you understand that this was larger than life? Oh, wow. Um, I think every step of the way. <laughs> you know, um, when I had close, when I, when I, was literally delivering Chloe Max got one of the biggest orders that I think uh, created a shift in the company and you knew with that order something big was about to happen yes it was definitely gonna it's gonna create uh, much more possibilities for us to grow and it was exciting. Were so you on I think the delivery every, table trying to figure out how you were going to fill the order? No, he was on the phone, and I kept on telling him to get off the phone. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I was like, nice. I'm delivering my first baby. Get we'll off deal with the it phone. later. <laughs> All right, tell us about one of the toughest um, obstacles, one of the biggest snags that you had at BCBG, something that was, that was tough to get through. In the large companies, communication, I think it's the toughest. It's, it's making people understand what your vision is and really setting up a company where there's proper descriptions for everything. You know, um, like, for example, job descriptions. You know, when you hire somebody, you need to give them a proper job description so they know what they're responsible for, so there's a pride in it. And I feel like when you grow so fast, sometimes you just hire people and they end up not knowing or not being qualified for that position. And so it's a lot of managing, um, a lot so, of personnel. But managing people is a big part of the job. It's you know, huge. it's not just being a creative person and designing. It's probably, it probably took up most of your day dealing with personalities and making people happy and <laughs> making sure they were being productive. And, you know, people don't realize it's not as glamorous as just designing all day. It's dealing with personalities and communication is such an important part of the success. Absolutely. I think I spend from I would arrive around nine till four managing things and then from four to eight is when I really became the creative genius that I am. (laughs) So one aspect that I think is a ginormous accomplishment other than obviously transforming the fashion industry is the fact that millions and I mean millions of young girls in this country and probably around the world went to BCBG as a go-to when it was time to buy their prom dress. And, you know, it seems like such a small thing, but have you ever stopped to think about what an important role 
BCBG played in this night for so many young women and the special meaning that comes with it? Yes. You know, because I have five daughters all together, we put so much love into it. We really focused on prom. I think it was very important that a girl or a woman feels beautiful. We had this, uh, we had this written said that if you ask our customer what she was wearing during the most special moments in her life, It'll be BCBG Max Azria. That was our mission. But you accomplished that. I mean, if you ask anyone, and the reason I came up with this is because I've asked so many girls what they feel or know about BCBG. And first of all, everyone has such a positive sentiment about the brand. And immediately everyone talks about their prom dress. And, and they talk about the details of their prom dress and they explain it. There's not a lot of dresses in your life other than your wedding dress and a few others that you remember with such vivid detail. I mean, if you think about that, it's kind of a big deal. It is a big deal. It is a big deal. And we put so much love into it. And we, we meaning the team that I work with, we really love designing the dresses and making sure that they fit right. It's one thing that you design a beautiful dress, but the fit is so important. Well, that's where your attention to detail comes in, Correct. I'm sure. And we used to, we, we still, well, I believe that the dress inside out should look just as beautiful as the right side out. Interesting. Yeah, so we did French seams. We did a lot of things couture houses would use. And we also tried to use the best fabrics and also to make everything affordable, knowing that there should be different price points for different people. All right, I want to talk a little bit about your work ethic because I, <laughs> um, I witnessed it. I saw it. I felt it. You know, I know that you um, came to the office and you were famous for working, you know, 12 to 15 hour days. You were all like the last one of locking up every night. You know, a lot of people think when you get to that point where you're so successful, why do you need to be the last person to leave? You know, you can ask other people to do it for you. Talk about that a little bit and why it was important for you to, you know, stay till the end and be there with your team. Well, I love my job. You know, I love what I did. I had the power to um, do and create, which to me is the greatest gift. And I surrounded myself with amazing people. And I just loving what you do. You don't work a day in your life when you actually love it, you know? And I, even though people counted hours, I didn't even know what time it was most of the time. I just wanted to be productive and aware um, that this is, this is, time is precious, you know? And so... I just focus, organize, you know, you plan ahead and having fun too. You know, we spend, I, one of the things that I really pride myself is that I really spend time with people. So where did you find um, most of your creative inspiration? It must've been an incredible amount of pressure to continually year after year have to come up with an entire new line. So we created about 150 new styles. I would say probably 100 new styles every month. I think it's just knowing what you want. I think every, every delivery told a story. I was excited about, I mean, I'm inspired by art, people, anything that's going on, really. A lot of your inspiration, I heard, came from your travels as well. Yes, travel is huge. Well, travel is like, it's art too, you know? You see everything in such a different perspective, so... I, I love creating. I mean, right now, I think my biggest frustration is that I could have designed so much more. <laughs> right. But you would like travel to, you know, some exotic country and find like one painting or piece of art and bring it back and create an entire line based on that one thing. Right. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I would go to 
whether we were in Spain, you know, and I would go to um, Sagrada de Familia, you know, it's the most beautiful cathedral in the world and get so inspired that uh, for one of our brands, Harvey Leger, you know, we would create jacquards that were breathtaking. I inspired mean, by a cathedral. Yes, I it is that. the most amazing cathedral. I mean, he was genius. People don't even realize when they're wearing the clothes that it's inspired by something like that. Everything tells a story. Everything that you see, everything that surrounds you has a story. What brands or designers did you look up to when you were in the, in the thick of um, it? My favorite designers, I think, were always the Japanese, like Yoji Yamamoto and Rai Kawakubo. And I think it's because they made us think. They designed something that was absolutely based on their vision, their sensibility, and it was a work of art. And I think something that is very hard to do, I think. In one way, it's easy to do, but another way to create a business based on that is incredible. What did it feel like and what does it mean to you to be a woman who was helping steer such a large company? I think that, you know, you don't realize, like a lot of people who are listening to this, um, you know, it's really a dream to get to the point where you were. And so, it, you know, it's important, obviously, that you understand from a, from a female perspective how important it is that you are as a role model that you were able to do that. Tell us what that means to you. It means a lot to me, you know. I think being a woman and working in fashion industry and having a position as high as I had um, and to inspire others to be better and to follow your lead is, is incredible. I met so many women who are in fashion and who are perhaps not as um, giving, <laughs> you know, but I think there's a, there's a great a quote by Madeleine O'Bright who says, women who do not help other women have a special place in hell. So I live by this quote. I believe that we need to help women. I think we need to inspire them. And That's the girls. whole point of this podcast. So, <laughs> yay. Absolutely. Well, Luba, tell it about um, your family life. I know you have a little bit of a Brady Bunch situation going on. Um, so you have three kids of your own with Max and then three from Max's previous um, marriage. But I understand that you're a very, very close family. Talk a little bit about the dynamic there. Our family dynamic. It's amazing. Uh, we have Shabbat every Friday. How do you have the um, energy to entertain after running a company and work? And Oh, it's the best part. I think it's the best part when you get to connect after a long week and you get to talk to your friends who you perhaps didn't have time to see on a weekday. I think it's fantastic. I think the people that come into your life, you just celebrate them, celebrate being together. I mean, you live... Life is so short. If you don't make special moments and and put forth the best of you, I think not much happens. So I have I have three daughters of my own and I have three stepchildren. And when I married Max, um, his daughters decided to live with, with with Max basically. And so I know Joyce since she was seven and Marina since she was five. And it's been incredible. I mean, I learned so much about 
uh, growing pains <laughs> from them, from watching them, and then having my own three daughters. They gave as you well. practice for your own kids. That's right. That's right. Now it's it's been incredible. And Max is amazing. He is so uh, passionate about not only what he does, but also about family and everything that's going on. And he's compassionate and just a beautiful person. He inspires me to be better. And um, I love a big family. I'm the only child. So this is, I love the craziness. I love the chaos. And like I said, it's not about me. You know, it's about, I just have to show up and just spread love and gratitude. I hear your Shabbat dinners are epic. (laughs) They are epic. We make all the effort. Those are the memories that really matter. So as you know, um, you've only just begun. Your success doesn't stop here. That's one of the you know the core values of SheDynasty.com is you know you never really hit success. It's a it's a journey, not a destination. So we really want to hear about what's next for you. We know you have something brewing. So tell us uh, what you're willing to say. So my first chapter, I guess, of my career was BCBG Max Azria, and I'm starting my second chapter. So I'm writing the story. Um, being not working for a little while give me a different perspective on what women want to wear you know i think that i've always for the last 25 years we've been creating for her special occasions and now i want to kind of make a shift you know i want to make a shift into something that's a little bit more casual I'm not going to give it away, <laughs> but I do have a concept of the way women dress and the way they want to feel. I think clothes should be comfortable as well as beautiful, and you should be able to live your life to the fullest, you know, and not be uncomfortable. So this is way. a whole new project, brand new, new concept. Project. Yes, it's a whole new concept. It's it's really um, it's it's exciting. I, I once we launch it, I'll and when and when can we expect to see it? We're probably going to launch it in June. Oh, great. This year. This year. Okay. Yeah. And I'm excited. You know, again, it's very simple. Um, I decided that it's going to be small and it's going to be really strategic. So you're going to do it differently than you did last time. Yes. Except for before you know it, you're going to have 15,000 employees again. <laughs> <laughs> I pray. You know, I want, I want women to work. Um, and really be inspired. So I think as long as I'm inspired, I hope that everybody around me will be inspired as well. And uh, it's not about how many people, it's about the work that you do. And I think with BCBG, with in 25 years, we went through so much that this time around, I want to really work from my heart and not try to meet every deadline. So, Luba, I want to thank you so much for being on the She Dynasty podcast. As I mentioned before, this is um, incredibly meaningful to me just because I've watched you in your career and your success. And you have inspired me to want to be driven and to grow and to be a business owner. And, you know, I attribute a lot of my success to you and other women like you. So please know the impact that you have had on so many people. And thank you for being here. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Thank you so much. And you're you're so inspiring. I'm so proud of you. And this She Dynasty is an amazing idea. I'm so proud of you. Thanks. Well, let's hope, you know, the point is to mentor other women and inspire them to do great things. And let's hope that it works. It will work. Let's not hope you're doing it. Congratulations.